Hello and welcome to the Two Real Cinema Club. I'm James Rizika. And my name is Andres Lemerte. And on the Two Real Cinema Club, every once in a while, every couple of weeks, we look at two films, one old one and one new, and we try to make some connections between the two. Uh, this week we are looking at Do Revenge, a new release on Netflix, so it's 2022. And comparing that to a film which I think it takes a lot from and admits as much, um, 1951 Alfred Hitchcock masterpiece, Strangers on a Train. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, this, this is the podcast where we spoil our Netflix automatic recommendations so you don't have to. <laughs> we, but before, before we talk about the films, we'll talk about the socials, which is what we're supposed to do uh, every show. So you can find us on Twitter uh, at Two Real Cine Club. Uh, you can find us on Instagram at Two Real Cinema Club. You can read our blog at Two Real Cinema Club.com. You can email us at Two Real Cinema Club at Gmail. I hope you're spotting a pattern. Um, and uh, you can find us on all the normal podcast providers. So uh, tell your friends uh, if you enjoy the pod. Uh, we are on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, all those places where you get your podcasts. Um, do uh, email into complaints. We love hearing your angry comments. Yes. And you know where to send them. We got very lucky. Everything is like a two real cinema club. If you just pop that into your search engine, we will come up and you can stalk us and haunt us and harass us. <laughs> yes. Yes, pursue us for that unpaid tax bill. We deserve as much. Um, all right. Are we ready to go in? Yeah, let's. let's I'm, I'm looking forward to going in. Let's go all in. All right. Let's go in. So we're going to talk about uh, Do Revenge is our first film this week. Um, again, uh, recent release on Netflix, so it's available for... All to See, um, directed by Jennifer uh, Katyn Robinson, and she's also one of the writers with Celeste Ballard on the film. I was going to say, so we, I mean, we, we talked about her like a few weeks ago, didn't we? Because she is one of the co-writers on Thor Love and Thunder. Precisely. I think that makes her a friend or an enemy of the pod, but uh, yeah. <laughs> two, two really different films, of course. Thor being sort of like a big blockbuster uh, a superhero of picture, and this is a, I guess a teen comedy. I was trying to think if it is absurd comedy. I had a little hard time um, placing it, but um, she's well, got I think two it's definitely absurd. But whether it's yeah, whether all the absurdity is intentional is my question. Pre yeah, precisely. Um, I couldn't get much information on her. Um, there's a very brief and kind of underwhelming IMDb profile, but I do not have the pro subscription, so maybe you get more information as a real pro. I, I, I don't have the pro subscription either. Isn't now, that do you, bad? Do, do you have to be an industry guy, or can you just? Uh, no, I, I'm just pay cheap. I think. I think they will let anybody pro sign up for pro. I think you just need to to cough up sixty bucks or however much it is. Yeah, so just, the only thing uh, I found out about Celeste Ballard was that her personal website says my parents are not in showbiz, which is her way of saying I'm not the daughter of JG Ballard. Stop asking oh, me. Of course. Ah, oh, that's interesting. I think. When I lived in Notting Hill, I lived next door to the daughter of J.G. Ballard. So, uh, and was she called Celeste? Uh, <laughs> that's a great question. I don't think so. No, she, I think she's uh, sensed that. This is something I want to talk about, the age of the writers. But uh, I sense that uh, the neighbor in Notting Hill was older than uh, Celeste Ballard would be now. But yeah, Maybe Celeste is the granddaughter then. Maybe was, <gasps> was, was there like a smaller girl running around when you were in Notting Hill? <laughs> No, we, we had very no. little contact with the neighbor in Notting Hill. So I'm going to shut up right there because I don't <laughs> want to get myself in more trouble. <laughs> happens every week on this podcast. Um, I do want to be transparent, though. I'm going to pull back the curtain a little bit, and I'm going to sort of go through my summary of the film, the way I sort of look at films, because 
I have created a store, uh, like a checklist um, that I write on when I'm watching a film, if I've got, you know, the space where I can write down. So the first thing I always look for is story, world, and atmosphere. And uh, the thing that, there are huge nods here, I think, to both like Heathers and uh, Clueless from the 90s, but also right, um, yeah. Strangers on a Train for sure, the, the Hitchcock film. So we're kind of in that... Uh, that realm of uh, the teen world and some, some some of the bad energy in the teen world as well as um, um, this this revenge uh, realm as well. Um, it's wealthy Miami, um, and one of the, the key theme that comes out emer- e- easily or early is um, Drea's. Drea's uh, played by Camilla Mendez. Right. Um, she, she's sort of the protagonist here, and she's... Uh, Seems like a pretty high flyer in her school. It's a wealthy, privileged, and uh, private school. Um, and uh, not only do we get one voiceover, we get her voiceover. I'll talk about another voiceover later. So this is a double voiceover film. Yeah. And Andrea says early on, everyone cares about status. So the key theme is kind of mentioned very um, early on. As I said, I'm not sure if it's a comedy. As, and you, as you said, maybe it's an unintention, unintentionally an absurd comedy, but... Um, um, it has that. Uh, it definitely seems like it's supposed to be a teen comedy and operate on that level. It. I mean, it opens at her. It's. It's a big party. I thought it was Drea's birthday party, but am I right? In which case, it must be. Is it her seventeenth birthday? Which birthday are we witnessing here? Excellent. So I think they're t- they're in eleventh grade. This doesn't make sense to the people in the UK. I don't think, but eleventh grade is when you're about seventeen years old. In high school, we have eleventh grade, and then finally twelfth grade. And I think okay. they probably use the word junior as well. Like a junior is an eleventh grader, and a senior is a twelfth grader here. And you, and this is another thing that I yeah. don't understand about the school and this movie. So, yeah. you know, there are self-consciously crazy pastel uniforms, and, and yeah. nobody seems to do. You know, there, there are no, there are no, no teachers, no yeah. lessons, no yeah. homework uh, in the school of any kind. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but I, one other thing which, which we kind of noticed when I'm watching the film was that there was also this, there's nobody under 17 as well now is that because the film is not interested in younger pupils at the school or with this kind of school would there be no one under the age of 17 anyway um great question it seems to me like it's definitely a a a private school for what we would say high school the fourth grades uh, from or the four grade levels i should say from ninth tenth eleventh and twelfth Great question. A lot of these, a lot of these private schools. My friend works at a private school not far in Tampa, and that's actually a K through, so a kindergarten through twelfth, so like thirteen mm. years of, of schools. Um, but yeah, is, is your friend's school like the like the school in this movie? I don't think it's quite oh. that wealthy, but it's. I think it's like close. I think it's definitely you know very mm. similar. Um, yeah, there are no other students, there are no teachers, there are barely any adults in this film. Um, and I felt like a lot of the places did not seem like schools. I couldn't tell what were houses and what were just these gorgeous dormitory spaces or uh, rooms in the in the school and on the campus. It was, And I, I realized later on that I also couldn't tell if it was, I thought it, it starts with this very Los Angeles kind of vibe. It seems a lot like Los Angeles, but it's actually in Miami. It was supposed right. to be filmed in LA, so I, I suspect that uh, it was kind of written for L.A., and they just moved it to Miami for whatever reason during the pandemic, possibly. Oh. A lot of it's filmed in Atlanta and Miami. And it's very funny because I had a hard time getting into the spaces because, number one, I couldn't, re- I couldn't really comprehend them. I couldn't understand them because um, it seems kind of surreal, this film, because everything is just so wealthy and uh, lush, and everyone is so perfect. 
Um, but I couldn't tell where people were. I really thought a lot of the times that they were in a dorm room, but the dorm rooms would have been really extravagant spaces for 17-year-olds. And then later on, it, you sort of understand, okay, they're in their houses. They all live nearby. Um, but it, um, for me, it was just I, I couldn't get into the spaces. Um, as a New Englander, it's a very, like, South Florida is a very different place to begin with. But then, I was, you know, in my mind, it was always Los Angeles. It wasn't until after I saw the film that I realized, oh, okay, they filmed it in Miami and and um, Atlanta, but it might have been written for the Los Angeles crowd, but it is that really, really uh, rich uh, private school kind of feel. Um, the protagonist is Drea Torres. Uh, yeah, she's a young Latina, so I, I think about protagonist very early on, and I identify that character. Um, she's a fish out of water to the certain extent that she's, uh, she's an underprivileged student at, at Rose Hill Private School, and she's sort of passing through this exclusive and wealthy world. So we are supposed to have that fish-out-of-water um, feeling. Her mother is a hard-working single parent. We never see her, as you said. I don't, other than a principal and a couple of security guards, we don't see any adults in this film whatsoever. Of course, a lot of the actors are probably in their mid-20s, mid but yeah. um, we don't see their parents at any point. Um, and I must say, this, this school's idea of being underprivileged um, is quite yeah. curious to me because even <laughs> even as an underprivileged poor girl, yeah, she still seems to have you know a pretty swish you know, sports car. Oh yeah, and you know enough money to spend on an enormous wardrobe for every season. Precisely, you know, her yeah. poor hardworking nurse mother must be doing like you know double shifts, twenty five <laughs> days a week, I think, to pay for all this stuff. Yeah, yeah, she is definitely uh, well off as well, but not as well off as some of the other characters in the, in the film. Um, the inciting incident is the end of 11th grade or junior year. Drea's boyfriend, Max, asks her to make sort of a, I guess it's either a striptease or a provocative video of herself. He goes on to share it with the entire school community, and that sort of gets her into trouble, tarnishes her reputation, and she's very concerned about getting into Yale in particular. Um, so her problem is really that she may not be admitted to Yale. Um, this is when she meets Eleanor, while sort of miserating is what the word I would miserating. I don't know if you can commiserate and miserate, but <laughs> she's at a summer tennis camp. Think tennis, because we're going to get some tennis in the next film as well. Um, oh, yeah. Another little nod to Strangers on a Train. Uh, she seeks revenge against this one uh, other high school, one of these Rose Hill girls who's a nemesis. I think she thought that this was the woman who had outed her or, or, her, or shared the video. But she gets a sort of revenge with her, so it's certainly about revenge. They talk about doing revenge. Um, Eleanor, as, 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 as a point of order, I got to ask about yeah. kind of getting revenge for Dre, getting yeah. revenge on Max, the boyfriend, because he leaks this kind of this you know, nude tape, this new yeah. video that she makes for him. Now in the UK, that is um, that is a, 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 an offence. That is, you know, there is a law. Uh, against doing that, and you know that's an offence, and Max will probably be looking at like you know I don't know nine months in prison or something like yeah. that. Yep. Is is this illegal in the US, or would it be kind of shrugged off and smiled at? No, I think you would get in credit in trouble for it. Um, it it I, the the conceit of the film is that you can't prove that Max did it. I believe that was the because and they they're they're high powered lawyers involved, right? His father's yeah. a high powered lawyer, and then one of Drea's friends who. Max goes on to date after he's finished with Drea. I think um, he's a lawyer as well. So I, I, my assumption there was, again, if you've got power and money uh, and high status, then you can get away with um, crimes. Yeah, maybe that's, yep, yeah. yep. that's so a present theme. Yep. I okay. think that was the okay. idea. So um, Eleanor, who's played by Maya Hawke, um, 
who, boy, looks a lot like both of her parents. And I was like, every time I saw her on screen, I thought, is that Ethan Hawke? Is that um, Uma Thurman? <laughs> yes, it is. Um, yes, it is. Uh, they become friends. Um, <laughs> Jimmy, is it, is it too late to do a cliche squad moment? No, I think I think let's call the cliche squad. Okay, cliche it's the cliche squad. Cliche squad. They meet because of a broken down car. Cliche, I believe. Dre's uh, car can't start. Amaya, or should, I should say, Eleanor is right there, ready to take her on a ride. And boy, does she ever take her on a ride! I think it's nice. It's kind of a nice metaphor when you think about it. But it was a a bit cliche like. So I just I've need seen to... that. I mean, Wait. it's such a neat little story moment because, yeah. you know, you get your two characters together and now yeah. they have to spend a period of time in a small confined space together. Yes. So, you know, so it's great for the story, but it utterly is a cliche. You're exactly right. It is. Yeah, yeah. And it's... Yeah. Um, cliche police arrest this film. Thank you. And it's a, it's a great ride in part because uh, Eleanor doesn't have to touch the steering wheel at all. She does not <laughs> do anything to make this car move. It's the straightest road you're ever going to drive on. And she barely moves while she's telling this very elaborate story about how um, she was wronged, too. So she had a, um, a humiliating experience when uh, um, someone, another child, uh, when she was a child, another, um, uh, she had confessed that she was gay to another um, girl at camp. And then that went, made rounds and became news at the camp. So she was also wronged, she felt. So they both need revenge. And they make this pact to help one another. Um, the antagonists with Max, the ex-boyfriend for Drea, definitely an antagonist. Um, and uh, see, I think just everyone around uh, Drea, they're all ladder climbers. They all want to get into great Ivy League schools. And um, we get the story from uh, both Eleanor and Drea's points of view. As I said, um, they both have voiceovers, and I'm not a big fan of voiceovers. So two rounds of voiceovers. Yeah, double takes, strike on yeah, this movie. I agree. It takes yeah. a lot of time, and it just gives away a story. And I think it makes it a lot longer than it needs to be. We'll probably talk about that um, as well. So the antagonist, I think, is kind of also the culture, this 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 privileged culture that's really hard to... I don't know, make appearances in and also just to, to get through the schools. You have to apply to the schools. It's, but as you said, you don't have to do any homework. You don't have to do any classwork. And the school year goes by very quickly. <laughs> and yet there's hardship, I guess. Um, I always look for visual descriptions of characters if possible. And there's a little bit of a cliche here, but they had, they have fun with it. Um, Eleanor is definitely the nerd girl who needs the makeover. Um, right. It's clever because they kind of have fun with it. And they say, oh, we're not going to do the old makeover thing. And sure enough, they do it. And then they have a, <laughs> a, a lovely little um, uh, montage that takes them into sort of the, the end of the first act and into the second act. Um, I think there are also some, there's the Latina girl with hard-working mother um, character, uh, yeah. kind of an archetype, uh, the rich and privileged people, of course, uh, and Max, I don't think Max was well cast, that's Austin Abrams, I believe, um, yeah. he's supposed to be this super hot guy on campus, but he's kind of attractive, and um, he just wears tennis sweaters, and I think that's how they sort of characterize him, and everyone is kind of characterized that way, as you said, there are school uniforms, and they're all super well dressed and couture and all that, and uh, um, so that's how a lot of the, um, the characters are, are sort of characterized visually. Um, I mean, the film—I would say—the film is not very interested in the male characters. I mean, really, there are only two male characters in the whole movie, and neither of them are particularly fleshed out or explored. You're talking about Elliot. I mean, the film has the very little interest Elliot in and them. Max. Say again. Elliot being the other one. 
Uh, Russ, I was thinking the oh, other Russ. one was Richard, yeah, yeah, the British actor. Russ he's like he's yeah. he's kind of Dreyer's love interest. He was like he was a uh, you know a, a, a very kind of sketchily drawn in character with yeah. a tiny little bit of background and very little to say for himself. Yeah. I can only assume the, the, uh, she, he becomes her love interest because he has a motorbike. That's, that's my that's his character, I think. Motorbike yeah. boy. That's basically yeah, it. Yeah. Um, but then I look for archetypes of characters, and there's a lot of name dropping or, or reference dropping in this film that um, I think is it's I think of it as a kind of shorthand, um, and um, it's it's like this film sort of gets some some characterization or some references by referencing others. They sort of get some storytelling out of it. Like there's this schoolhouse rock reference, and I don't know if that makes any sense to anyone in the United Kingdom, but she says um, they're having this discussion about this idea of doing revenge, and do revenge sounds really strange to Drea. Um, and, or no, it sounds very strange to Eleanor, and um, then Drea says, oh, sorry, schoolhouse rock dragging my sentence structure. And I don't know if that makes any sense to anyone not, young not today. Not a jot of sense even... in the UK, no, not at all. Okay, so, and this is, I want to talk about the writers who I think are older, writing this sort of younger person story, because that's from the 1970s. That's definitely my generation. And on Saturday morning cartoons, we had these little educational animations. Uh, oh, and Schoolhouse my God. Rock okay. would either tell you how a bill goes through Congress in the United States and becomes a law, or maybe what snack materials are healthy, or there were a lot on grammar. So you'd have a little grammar lesson. Um, and it just seemed way out of the the lexicon of these young ladies because it goes back forty years at least. Um, younger and they than would, they, what, they would do it in a rock song or something. What was the rock part of school? Yeah, there'd rock? be a song. Um, I think the yeah yeah there'd be some sort of a sing along. Um, the famous one is conjunction junction. What's your function? And then it tells you about and or and but and how they work. It's this train train conductor or train worker showing how the trains connect different words, the train cars connect different words using conjunctions. That's, this, that's completely awesome. I can't believe we didn't have this in Britain. This it's fan- great. It's fantastic. You can YouTube them all. They're fantastic, but they're not part of this generation, and I don't know that this generation watches that stuff. Um, Surely not, yeah. yeah. I mean, my goodness. And then, Surely and not. I thought the title the... Do Revenge was kind of a, a, a like a sort of a play on the notion of do crime, which is kind mm. of a, you know, a slightly meme way of referring to breaking the law you yeah. know, let's do crime um and i was guessing that do revenge was just borrowing that that kind of sentence structure and and sort of twisting it yeah, so you know the, yeah. the notion of yeah schoolhouse rock utterly utterly passed me by. okay good and then shortly after that uh drea seems kind of crazy and uh, no i'm sorry eleanor seems kind of crazy to drea and drea calls her glenn close with her getting on her um it's not basic instinct what is that film that's the the Glenn Close one. Fatal Attraction. Yeah. Fatal Attraction. Fatal Attraction. And again, this is a film that came out uh, 30-something, 35 years ago. Yeah, um, it's like 1988, I'm pretty sure that film yeah. is. Yeah, I, that's definitely not in my children's lexicon. So the references are kind of odd, but I mean, usually references are in there to sort of, you know, pull a film into a certain era or give it some sort of relevance, and they were strange. The, the one that's more current even didn't make sense. Oscar winner Olivia Coleman is the name of <laughs> Drea's lizard. Um and that's from a film that's from the the favorite, right? She won that a few years ago, which is yeah. definitely not a teenager film at uh, all. I don't think. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. So I was I was very. And I think it's all about the writing and the, and the age of the writers versus who they actually think they're writing it for. And I, and some of the the film doesn't really work on all levels. I think because the writers are not uh, 
even close to that age is my guess. I'd like to put, and the IMDb doesn't give you a lot of information on the writers, as you said. So, I, I think that Jennifer Kate and Robinson and Celeste Bard are quite a bit younger than you and me. Probably, yeah. So I'd, I'd, I'd be interested to know where this material has come from. Yeah, yeah that's, that's interesting. Interesting stuff. But we have all the other archetypes of uh, popular kids, nerds, outcasts, and they're all um, in this film. And so they want to sort of exchange their revenges, like Drea will help... Um, uh, God, I'm pretty, uh, Eleanor, Eleanor. <laughs> with her revenge against the girl from summer camp who just happens to be at this Rose Hill school with them. And then Drea will help, um, and then uh, Eleanor will help Drea with her revenge against Max, who has um, uh, sort of made widespread this video that she, this intimate video that he, now, she had made for him. I must um, say, at this, at this point in the movie, yeah. uh, I was kind of fairly down for this premise. The the film is kind of set at these two characters and they seem a bit different. And I was now expecting it to get into the proper meat of the movie, which is going to be some kind of, you know, quite complicated heist type situation with lots of kind of suspense and something very clever and some disguises and some kind of misdirection. And but in my opinion, from here on in, the film does not deliver this promise that it makes with this premise. But I don't know whether you feel the same way. Let's Mm. talk about it a bit more. I want to know what you think. Well, I think the I, I, I agree with you. Um, yeah, I think, well, for, I'll go to the stakes first. Um, like, they're worried a little bit, I think Dre in particular, of getting kicked out of school and not getting into other schools. And she's already lost some friends, but I think there's this, this dilemma of losing certain friends and gaining other lesser friends, perhaps, and losing status. Remember, she talks about status at the very beginning. So I think it's right, mostly yeah. about status. And sadly, maybe less about the, the real revenge, but uh, we'll talk more, I guess. Um, at the midpoint of this film, I thought, was when um, they, they concoct this this plan to dose the soup at the ring ceremony for the juniors. Uh, for, um, I think they're seniors now. That's right. This is their senior year now. Um, there's some ring ceremony where everyone gets a class ring. And Car- Carissa is the allegedly the girl who outed... Um, Eleanor as a kid at summer camp. So Eleanor right. wants to get revenge on Carissa. Carissa is the one in charge of the farm that predominantly... <laughs> I can't believe there's a farm on campus. This is wonderful. Surely all posh private schools yeah, have a, a, lot a farm, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> so she runs the farm on campus. She's growing hallucinogenic mushrooms and, and cannabis, and they're going to they're gonna take her mushrooms and they're going to dose the entire senior class to get Carissa in trouble. Their plan works really quite perfectly. Um, because Drea has, uh, I guess, part of her punishment um, for doing something. Who knows why she's punished? Um, She is forced to work on the farm, volunteer on the farm. So she has access to the mushrooms. They dose it. And during this crazy night of all the seniors um, hallucinating on on mushrooms, uh, Eleanor is able to steal um, Max's telephone, and it's going to have evidence of all of his ill-doing so that... uh, Drea can out, out, out uh, Max as being this this douchebag. I mean, honestly, we already know that, but we can <laughs> I mean, I think this this is like this. you know this is exactly my complaint about um, the film not providing what was promised because, yep. like you say, they they hatch this plan to dose the party with hallucinogenics and it goes all perfectly to plan. Um, you know, there's no hiccups, there's no problems. You know, exactly the thing that you thought would happen happens. Um, you know, and even you know, when they get discovered, that's part of the plan because they want the the head the head of the school to to then expel Carissa for yeah. for growing these psychedelics. Yeah. Um, and it it felt like you know, if you're going to steal Max's phone, this is a you know a, a 
pretty unexciting way to do it, really. Yes. People people kind of dance around a little bit in a you know, mildly amusing scene while they're hallucinating. Yeah. But otherwise, you know, she steals his phone and then you know somehow manages to hack it. You know, um, using some sort of software, you know, when surely there could have been some much cleverer, more fun play about how are we going to get Max to unlock the phone? How are we going to get his thumbprint on it? Or how are we going to get him to use his face to unlock the screen or something like that? Yeah. There could have been many more layers of fun and complication to this, but it all goes forward very straightforwardly. Yeah. And I think, waste. yeah, this part's hard to believe. And then actually even what follows is kind of hard to believe is that, um, they release the evidence to the whole school. It expo- exposes Max as not only cheating on Drea, um, but also just having affairs on his new girlfriend, who is another friend of Drea's, um, that he's just a cheater, uh, he's manipulative. Um, and it, it's very funny because just Max as a character doesn't quite seem there. I mean, I guess he we're told that he's the big guy on campus and we're not really given any options for uh, other big guys on campus. Um, so it, it's not like it's a major revelation either. It's like he, he's, yeah, he's a jackass um, and he's cheated on a lot of people, but it's, it's, a, it's at the same time, it's kind of a little bit hard to believe that he is that character. And I think that might be the casting for me. I don't know. I had a hard time believing him as that guy. Um, yeah. The act two curtain, um, Drea sort of, this is sort of the end of the act two. Um, Drea hooks up with arts, artsy Russ. I think it is not Russ, but Russ. Um, right. Yep. Uh oh! Another sort of cliche squad moment. There's a paint fight. Russ is an artist. Uh, he has this fantastic studio, by the way. The warehouse space is tremendous, and it does need explanation. His father was using it for something, but then he said, "Oh, Russ, you can use it for your artwork." Um, <laughs> Russ and Andrea get into this paint fighting scene that leads to artsy, but toxic toxic sexiness i mean I, they were kissing each other with paint on their lips i was worried about them i thought i mean that would have been clever for me they both die right there passion in a passionate embrace um uh so that happens so she's now got sort of a new love interest who happens to be is it carissa it's carissa's i thought he was carissa's love interest before that i'm not entirely sure but he was definitely also working on the farm so they had a connection and then it led to um this um this romantic uh, moment. Um, so Max has been outed, but it's kind of, this is kind of a clever moment. They use this, uh, the whole school thinks Max is uh, this lecherous young man, but um, he and his buddies turn it into like this political manipulation where they, they co-opt it and say, oh no, we're celebrating polyamorous living and sexual exploration. Um, and uh, it kind of works against Drea and and uh, and Eleanor, in the sense that it, people actually start to celebrate Max and his uh, his lifestyle a little bit more than they thought, um, than than blaming him for it. Um, Andreas, for somehow for some reason, she does equate this with her hopes of getting into Yale, just dying. It's like for some reason, because this doesn't work, she's not going to get into into Yale and the Ivy League. Ivy League and again, like the kind of the, the premise of the movie being that they swap their revenges. Yes. And it utterly doesn't work in this situation, and does it? Because um, you know, Dreher is trying to get revenge on Max through Eleanor, yeah. so that it can't be traced back to her. And everybody immediately then just points the finger at Dreher and say, "Oh, you've you know, you've you've ruined it, Dreher. You were stupid." Yeah, exactly. Um, so, kind of the whole function of their crisscross crime swap it was yep. just bypassed. It's forgotten about, isn't it? Yes. Oh, I'm glad you said crisscross because that does come up in the next ah. movie too, doesn't it? Nice. 
Um, I look for a late surprise usually because, and, and, and this does not necessarily happen to ha- have to happen in uh, films, but I think in this day and age we see so many twists and things can't be as exactly as we see them. So there's a late surprise, um, and it's literally a surprise. Drea comes to a surprise party for Eleanor. Eleanor sort of become in part of, in order to exact the revenge, she come, becomes kind of the inner crowd with Max and his friends. Um, they're throwing a, a surprise party for Eleanor. Andrea, who's not popular with anyone, bursts into that party. Um, it le- leads to this sort of dissolution of the friendship between um, Eleanor and, and Andrea and their partnership in the revenge scheme. Um, and it, we, the revelation here is that it turns out that Eleanor appears to be the mastermind of all these plans. Uh, she's planned revenge on Andrea for years because Drea was actually the one who outed Eleanor before a nose job when she was called Nosy Nora. Um, uh, it was it was Drea who said that she was uh, gay back there at camp when they were kids. So this has all been an elaborate plan for uh, Eleanor to get back at uh, Drea. And honestly, again, one of those things where there, there must be a hundred more straightforward, less convoluted ways for Eleanor to get her revenge on Drea. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it, it's cute that you get this reveal. Oh, I was actually I was after you all along. But this yeah. is a, you know a very strange way to exact your revenge. Yeah, and we we talk about third acts being really hard, and they are, um, but I think writers make third acts even more difficult than they they have to be. And I, it, I, I think the film is uh, two hours and five minutes. I just think it's too long. And I think right yeah. around this point is where it really starts to um, sort of give up the ghost a little bit. It, it, you know, they're <laughs> trying, but they're not really trying hard enough to to make the twists make sense or be that interesting. So um, it gets into some problems here. Um, there's a late moment, uh, late theme moment here um, where uh, Drea says, sometimes it just hurts to exist. I just want to feel normal again. And I think that they, um, they eventually start to see one another as friends. Going through this experience, they're actually kind of friends. It's hard to admit that because they're both trying to get revenge and particularly Eleanor trying to get revenge on Andrea. Um, and it's also hard to believe they're friends in the next moment, which I call a falling action moment, where Drea is in a car accident and it's actually Eleanor. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> this is why it feels like absurd comedy. Eleanor actually hits her um, with the intention, the motivation is to get the cool gang, uh, Max and all his friends, to sympathize with Drea. Um, it's a real stretch of desperate measures for me. Um, and that's why, again, I thought maybe they're just trying to do absurd comedy. Um, I mean, it's, yeah, it's, I, I agree. Again, it's yeah. kind of, it seems convoluted and a strange solution to choose. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the resonu- resolution here is finally that Eleanor is going to use Drea for one last uh, revenge. She still doesn't feel avenged uh, despite hitting her with a car <laughs> and breaking her even farther down. Drea is pretty desperate at this point. Um, ultimately, they're kind of similar. They're practically sisters, and they sort of come back together to bring Max down yet again. Um, it's kind of a flaw for me because he's already been exposed. Uh, we already know he's a, a bad guy. Um, it's just kind of re- reconfirming to what degree he's a douche uh, doesn't make for a very uh, climactic moment. It's, it feels very yeah. anticlimactic. Um, and it's this bizarre party where only people, and this, I think, Jimmy, you'll, you'll like this too. I think if I understood <laughs> it correctly, um, only if you were accepted into an Ivy League school and had an acceptance letter could you go to this party. 
Yeah, although it just seemed like absolutely everybody from the school must everybody. have had an acceptance yeah, letter. From everybody's there, which again, I don't, know, I don't know if that's a commentary on just if you're rich, you get into whatever school you want to or not. But it's just, again, it's unrealistic because it seems like the entire senior class is there, which would be a very high percentage rate for getting into the Ivy League schools, of which there are about, what, eight or ten, something like that. So... Um, very, I like the idea you know, that at this at this party it's supposed to be the most debauched party of the year. You know, yeah. It's so debauched that everyone must leave their their kind of their cellular phones that's at the right. front door. That's right. Um, and yet, as far as I can tell, no debauchery of any kind happens during this party. It feels it was, less debauched than all the other ones. That yeah, we've it was. Seen. It was less debauched. I agree with you. Yeah. So um, that's kind of the climax, and it just felt like an anticlimax. And I remember at one point uh, I was watching with my wife and thought the film was more or less over and then you know I paused the movie for a moment and there were still 44 minutes to go so, <laughs> so it's hard to really talk about it as a third act because I think there's like a, a 3b or even a fourth act on this film um and uh, I think we we're gonna talk a little bit about favorite scenes and I was just gonna say one of my favorite scenes in this film is probably one of the shortest it's a seven second scene where um, they're just discussing how to celebrate um Eleanor's party and they're in the library it's just this clever little scene where um, Dre is sort of uh, stalking uh, Eleanor at this point. She pulls out a few books, and on the other side of the the book uh, stall or the bookshelf is um, Eleanor, and they just have this cute little conversation. It's probably four or five lines of dialogue total, um, where they're planning their revenge, but also Eleanor's inviting Dre to spend uh, her birthday together. And uh, they just have the conversation quickly between openings of the bookshelves, and then they just close up the bookshelves. It's just, it, like, from a cinematography level, it's wonderful because the cut is really just in the books coming in and out, um, being shelved and, and reshelved. And uh, it's just a quick, it's a quick scene. It does it, what it needs to do very efficiently. I love that scene. So I'm, I'm pointing to that as my favorite scene in this film. Yeah, the movie would be a lot better if there were many other scenes with that level of, sort of brevity and yeah. uh, if they, with that to the point, I agree. Yeah, so they end up kind of as friends um, and they've gotten revenge on Max. Um, and I think uh, Andrea can get into Yale, but she decides to do something else afterwards. And so the status becomes, I guess, less important than it was at the beginning of the story. So that's her character arc. Um, the, the film, like so many teen pieces, it sort of depends on fully absent parents, no authority figures, <laughs> uh, no consequences for the ne'er-do-wellers and their crazy plans. Yeah. Um, so it's made for a young audience, um, who, I don't know, I guess they just don't want to see people get in trouble on screen or, or their parents on screen. <laughs> they want to see themselves in their crazy <laughs> lives. Um, it's. I think it's. It's kind of ironic because it's so much. There's so much homage in this film to. Um, again, I'll say Clueless and Heather's. Heather's, which just has this wonderful darkness about it, and Clueless, I think, has a lot of introspection about it because the character in Clueless is really thoughtful, um, right. even though she seems really superficial. And this one, um, doesn't really. And it. it it's further ironic. It's, I think it's ironic on another level because again, I think the the writers, of course, and the makers of the film are a little bit older. Um, there was a lot of music from Gen X, um, mm, and they're yeah. making this Gen Z film, uh, the name dropping and references that I talked about earlier, that all feels Gen X and this is supposed to be a Gen Z film. So, um, it was really odd. I thought it was a really odd film. I mean, I didn't hate it. I didn't think it was a terrible film, but it, it wasn't made for me. And, um, so I think I had a hard time just getting into the space of it, as I mentioned earlier and into the, the entire themes of it. And I don't think it really did something. I felt like it was... It was sort of being sold something. It felt very, very commercial to me. It started advertising privilege while simultaneously having 
like some pretense of questioning it. Like they, she talks about status and how it shouldn't mean anything, but it's all about status. It's all about having stuff. It's a really, it's a really sort of um, uh, small percentage of the population that you know this this film treats. I think, and you don't you don't get to see Drea's mother working hard or anything like that. You don't get to see how uh, Eleanor's family might be a bit more eccentric because she is. Um, there's there's nothing outside of that little teen world, and there's ironically there's really nothing inside that teen world. Either. Yeah, As you said, you've never yeah. seen anyone studying or doing anything teenager. It's all this other lifestyle that they're sort of selling me. So that's where I'll leave my initial comments. There's one other thing I want to talk about, but I want to hear what you have for well, I, insights too. I I was kind of, at the end of this movie. I was trying to think what is what is the basic theme of this film? Yeah, and what is the primary idea that it's trying to explore and I think the main theme of this film can be summarized in two words which is hate women I think this film hates women Ooh, wow um, I think I think all of the characters in the film hate women I think all the women characters in the in the film hate each other I think the women characters hate themselves I think this is just one big hate in about how dreadful and awful women are that was the way that I saw wow. it yeah I, I found it kind of extremely negative yeah um you know and it's a shame and, and although you know it, you would kind of hope that there would be some some um, underlying message of um, Drea's uh, turnaround when she realizes, oh no, actually having having status isn't the important thing. And yeah, um, Sarah Michelle Geller, who plays like the principal, yeah. you know, tells her at the very end, oh, you're 17, the whole world's in front of you, and now is your chance to really kind of you know blossom and grow into a butterfly or whatever. Yeah. Um, but actually, um, all of the characters in this film. You know, don't feel modern to me. They don't feel um, liberated. They seem to me actually to have incredibly traditional values. Actually, I would say that all of the young women in this film are presented as um, only wanting to have a rich husband and a large house, mm. as if they're kind of minor characters from a Jane Austen book or something like that. I don't. That doesn't feel. Um, it feels like it tips its hat, hat at modernity and then kicks all of the women involved straight back into the 18th century. I, I, I thought it was you know, a, a pretty negative, anti-progressive film. Yeah, I think I agree with you. And I th I, it's that introspection piece that's missing because I, I do think those, those two themes moments that I mentioned about um, status meaning something for everyone and sometimes it just hurts to exist. I want to feel normal again. It's like... The, the characters never really confront those those statements, I don't think. I don't think they ever really confront those themes. Like, I, I want to be more normal by just not caring about um, status and this whole culture that I've been brought up in. And I, I think a film like Clueless definitely does that, and a film like Heather's gets so dark, it, it also does that to the point of trying to destroy it. You know, So I think there's this sort of acceptance of... Of this is the way it is. This is the way it's always going to be. And yeah, that is a, a, a an ideology, I guess, that goes back to eighteen hundreds, as you said. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's the opposite of progressive. I mean, even those moments yeah. when the characters are absolutely at their lowest ebb, like when Drea is in the hospital or whatever, or you know, when when uh, you know, every, when all is lost, it's like that kind of screenwriting all is lost moment. Yeah, it still only feels like it doesn't just doesn't really feel sincere to me it feels like the characters are just having a little breather before getting back to being you know venomous again um it doesn't really feel like there's any real you know real consequences any real no. loss any real tragedy any real strong emotions apart from contempt for your fellow students yeah i wonder whether this tells us something about the expectations and the upbringing of the people who made the film I wonder well, that, what their school yeah. lives were like. Yeah, exactly. I think it's more about their school lives than it is about, and that's why it seems more traditional or more conservative or just older 
values is I think, again, there's this sort of disconnect between the, the audience that might watch this film now and the, audience, and the, and the writers who created it. Um, and that leads sort of to my next, my next insight, or the thing that I started thinking about was, um, what does straight-to-video mean anymore? You know, you used to think of a, <laughs> a small film that maybe wasn't going to succeed in the theater. They'd put it right on a, a VHS tape or a DVD. Um, and now you've got straight-to-streaming, I think. It's like everything could play either. It's probably, you know, everything's probably going to make more money or have a larger audience now, for sure, on, on streaming, online. Um, so I don't know if straight-to... If we have anything that captures that idea of straight to, to video is it straight to netflix straight um, to netflix i suppose yeah netflix yeah. original i'm the more netflix originals i see the more i'm getting a feeling that the, the phrase netflix original um, yeah. is a red flag okay interesting <laughs> it just means yeah film not quite good enough to get theatrical distribution okay and the reason Approach I, with caution i think the reason we need to talk about it is because again just harping on this the filmmakers are from a different generation and for me this is a great mall movie you're supposed to see this ah. kind of film um, in a megaplex cinema and then go to the food court and sit on hard plastic chairs and linoleum you know, floors and talk about it or, or just uh, repeat all the lines and laugh at it. And I don't know that anyone watches films that way anymore. I don't think this is going to get a theatrical release. And, uh, oh. and the, just that, that experience no longer exists. And I think that's part of the reason it misses. Um, because people did yeah, go to you're right. this is this is a film you would see in theaters and it would you know it sort of get around the the teen world that way and it's just they're kind of recreating a film uh, that might not work anymore and especially at two hours I don't think it works because kids are going to watch things for two minutes you know and then they're going to start getting distracted <laughs> and it just um, s- streaming has become the, I think this the straight to venue and the thing is you can stop you can pause you can repeat so I don't know that mm-hmm. kids are watching two hours in one sit down, you know, they might see it late at night at one in the morning when their friends are no longer texting them or something like that. And it's just, um, it's a totally a different market now. And I think this film is a mall movie. Ah, and it's, it's made like, by people who, even, who went to mall movies. That's the thing. Even those kind of pastel colors for the uniform and the, the, like the, 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 the kind of the set design and everything that feels very very 80s mall to me even yeah oh definitely um there is there is a modern phenomenon of like a netflix party isn't there i think it's something that my daughter sometimes does where oh, you good. can you can all join a like a party and watch the movie oh. simultaneously yeah on your own laptop at home and then okay. kind of text each other and say oh that was funny or oh, oh i like that dress or, or yeah whatever i'm sure she, i'm sure she texts far less superficial things than that but yeah um you know there is there is you know a, a, such a, a a phenomenon but it's not the same as sitting in a dark room with Precisely. kind of popcorn yeah and you know and feeling everybody laugh around you yeah yeah uh but uh, this is the modern world isn't it, yeah, it is. this is i don't know whether this is post-pandemic or whether this is you know just another nail in the coffin of of kind of exhibition that's yeah, a shame. Could be. Something I was quite disappointed about, yeah. by this movie overall, okay. and I think yeah, you know, I do feel like it feels politically regressive and uh, yeah, a little bit misogynistic. Yeah. But, but uh, maybe someone who is a teenager could tell me different. I'd be interested. I yes. And I went into it, I think, about as open-minded as I could be, and I thought I might like it a bit more. I thought it would be funnier, I guess, or darker, or something, and it wasn't. It wasn't either. And that's when I started thinking, oh, this is absurd. Is this a comedy that's not really funny, but it's a, a comedy that I'm supposed to be uh, impressed by, by its wit or something like that, or its insight? And it wasn't. It just didn't, uh, it didn't work on either level. So. And I, felt like I wonder whether with another few drafts, it could have been a little bit 
just become cleverer and yeah. a little bit more sincere. Yeah, I think the potential is uh, there. But then, yeah. you know, uh, yeah, exactly. It's, it's like it is a cute idea. And they do you know, really try and sell um, uh, its its roots in earlier films. Although yeah. I'm, you know, I'm not sure it can quite handle hold a candle to most of those films. I've got one yeah. last thing to say yeah. about, uh, about this film before I, I've kind of exhausted my thoughts about it, which is just the soundtrack. And it's interesting you're kind of saying, well, this is, you know, these are songs from a different era to the... Yeah, the songs that would appeal to the audience. I felt like um, if they were going to go the whole hog, then they they really missed a trick because there are like other because they should have had um, songs by Chris Cross, like the uh, the eighties yacht rock singer who, uh, <laughs> who who sang the theme song of Arthur. Yeah, they could have had Sailing by Chris Cross, or maybe even if they weren't going to go that far back, they could have had um, Jump by eighties uh, rap outfit Chris Cross. Oh. That's that's uh, that's the, they, they've really missed out on some 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 great soundtrack opportunities oh there. You're, I might write in a complaint. Yeah, you're working the crisscross theme very well. <laughs> Nicely done. I think you'll have a chance. Right, let's to do have it. a yeah. let's have a break before I think of more music jokes. Oh, yeah. um, and then uh, in a minute we will come back and we'll talk about uh, the antecedent of this film. The antecedent Ooh. is that right? Antecedent. How do you pronounce and that? Um, I think we, we say Hitchcock's antecedent. Yeah, antecedent. Antecedent. antecedent yeah. Thank you. See, I, I should have I should have watched those educational movies, the, the <laughs> educational videos that were on TV when you were Schoolhouse little. Rock. Yeah. yeah, Schoolhouse Rock. That's it. So we're, we're going to come back. And we can talk about strangers on a train. Uh, we'll see you in a minute. Cinema Club is definitely not brought to you by the fake supporters at Nose. <laughs> Nose? <laughs> Jimmy, can you smell that? I can, I can certainly smell something, but if, it, if I can smell the same thing that you can smell, that smell is very strong. Aha. Uh -huh. Well, that's the boric acid we've used to kill the <sighs> fleas infesting our home. You really can't smell that? Then you need Nose. That's K-N-O-W-S. Oh, that's good. Yeah, thank you. If you're like me, and I know you don't want to be like me, but you're having a great time using your smartphone to identify birds by the sound of their songs. You're using an application like Merlin. Not a sponsor, by the way. Merlin does not sponsor us. Also um, not a sponsor. We just got a free plug, though. Or you're identifying plants by taking photos with an app like Seek. Also not a sponsor. Uh, or you're remembering the names of songs by briefly recording them with your phones with an app like Shazam. Do you see the pattern? Are they sponsoring us? Yeah. No, they're, no they're not. They're not. No, they're and not. Th that's the pattern. These people are not <laughs> sponsoring oh, us. But that ends here and now with nose. <laughs> How often have you encountered an aroma or stench that puzzled you with its essence? Just hold your smartphone. Your smartphone, sorry. In the general smart vicinity. Smartphone, that's good. <laughs> Did I say smartphone? I didn't mean that. No. <laughs> Just hold your smartphone in the general vicinity of the affected air area, and the enhanced 5G olfactory sensors inside the Nose app do the rest. Here's a short list of things I was recently able to identify recently. Well, with notes. I think I had two recentlys in there. Um, lilacs, oh, dripping with morning dew. Grandma's cheap rosehip perfume, average oh. dosage. It's great because it senses <laughs> degrees and intensity of odor. Um, oh, 
lemon dill salmon in a pinot grigio reduction paired with flash braised new potatoes in wild shallot brown sugar butter. Now that I, that I wouldn't mind smelling, yeah. That's a very impressive level of detail, isn't it? Uh-oh. Yeah. Too many stouts last night, flatulence. <laughs> Rutting moose. Asparagus pea. Oh, God. They say that only one out of three people can smell their asparagus pea. Uh, New York summer subway car. Oh, so dear. Let's get the location. So the program obviously is compatible with, uh, like, Google Earth or something. <laughs> Um, Axe body spray, nearby teenage boy, algal <laughs> bloom, Jeff's cheap Chinese leftovers. Even got the guy in the name, the name, guy's name. Um, here's this was impressive. Brevortia tyrannis, fish die off. I don't even know what that is. That's, well, that's that's a dinosaur, isn't it? No, it's a it's a men menhaden. It's a, a that's bio, binomial nomenclature for um, a fish called the menhaden. Oh, yeah. Um, Recreational cannabis, you want to ask ah. that dude about. They even told you. <laughs> Broccoli that should have been refrigerated. Dirt. Oh, yeah, we have plenty of that. Just dirt, you idiot. God, I was trying to <laughs> fool it, and it just identified the dirt. Roasting nuts, streets of Buenos Aires. Oh, unmistakable. Oh. More axe body spray, teenage boy. The thing about that is I work in a high school, so I get a lot of the axe. Here, here, too. This is <laughs> you have a lot of that. This was impressive, Jimmy. Uncle Amos's sweater vest. Uncle Amos's sweaty chest. You can see how they're close, right? <laughs> Important distinction and that close, but close, but just distinguishable. Exactly, and that's how precise uh, nose really is. No more asking, "What's that smell?" No more, "Do I have bad bad body odor again?" No more, "Is that durian or is that actually an edible fruit?" <laughs> no more not knowing what the smells are around you. It's time to know. Go to nose.crap. That's K-N-O-W-S dot C-R-A-P-P, because it's a, an application, you see, and download the app today. Here's their tagline, Jimmy. When you don't know and nobody you know knows, knows, knows. <laughs> I'm downloading that immediately. Good luck. Good luck finding it. But yes. <laughs> and we're back. Um, this is this is an exciting moment, actually. This is very exciting. I can't believe. So we've got to episode twenty eight, something like that, and this is the first time we've got a Hitchcock movie wow. on the pod. Mm. So uh, very exciting, and it's one of the really good ones as well. So supposedly Hitchcock's fourth best film is what I read somewhere. Ooh. I think that's what the clever people say. How do you rate that? Uh, How do you rate that with a, an application? <laughs> Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> yeah, you can download it today. Um, this is Strangers on a Train, 1951, a black and white Hitchcock film. Um, one of those kind of comeback films for Hitchcock. So his, his career had plenty of ups and downs. Mm -hmm. um, and at this point, he really needed a hit. So he had had hit. He had uh, he'd had recent flops with Stage Fright and Under Capricorn, neither of which I have seen. Um, and he was starting to worry that um, his career might be on the wane. He really needed a hit. Um, so he bought the rights 
to Strangers on a Train, which was published the previous year, 1950, by Patricia Highsmith. Um, and then he got uh, Whitfield Cook uh, to turn it into a treatment. This is one of those few films where there's a great deal of information about the writing of the film. This is ideal for the pod. Mm. So uh, I read um, Creatures of Darkness by Gene Phillips, which is a book about uh, Raymond Chandler's career in Hollywood. Um, and so uh, you know, a lot of great um, background information about this film um, in that book, because uh, Hitchcock enlisted Raymond Chandler to turn uh, Whitfield Cook's treatment into a script. Now, Whitfield Cook was um, uh, a friend of Patricia Hitchcock, so uh, Alfred Hitchcock's daughter. Yeah. Uh, so he directed her in a Broadway play, Violet, uh, which he had written. Um, so he wrote the treatment. Uh, Hitchcock showed the treatment to Chandler. And Raymond Chandler uh, was paid uh, $2,500 a week by Warner Brothers to write the script. And he turned in a draft after five weeks. And Hitchcock and Raymond Chandler did not get on. Mm. Um, so Hitchcock, I think, thought that Raymond Chandler was pretty useless. Ooh. Raymond Chandler was probably drunk most of the time. Yeah, Chandler really hated um, Hitchcock's way of working, which was um, endless script meetings. Oh. So Hitchcock would go around to Chandler's place. So I think Chandler hated going to Hitchcock's um, office. So Hitchcock then offered to come to his place and would kind of get out of the car and, and sit in, in uh, Raymond Chandler's office and uh, ask him, you know, well, how does the story work? And, yeah, and, yeah. and sort of turn the soil over again and again and, yeah. and constantly be asking his questions about how can we make it work? What if this happened? What if that happened? Um, and, uh, and Chandler hated this. Yeah. Um, so, it's hard work. Uh, so, it's uh, hard work. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Writing but then, but then you, you've got to assume this is why Hitchcock's scripts always ended up so great. Yeah, exactly. Because he'd worked on them so goddamn much. Yeah. They just worked and worked and worked. Um, I think Chandler's kind of said, um, well, this is Hitchcock, I think, said this. So you can read this in, in the in the Truffaut book of interviews with Hitchcock. Oh, yeah. Hitchcock said that uh, he would tell Chandler, well, why not do it this way? And Chandler said, well, if you can puzzle it out, what do you need me for? Uh, so yeah. he, uh, what what Chandler wanted was just to be left alone, you know, with a drink and a typewriter, and he would come yeah. out with the script. Well, um, he was he's he's more of a, like a novel writer, I suppose, right? He's not yeah, necessarily a screenwriter, and I think screenwriting is much more about working it, reworking it, and collaborating. That's the thing that probably escaped yeah, him. Yeah. Uh, Jimmy, I was just going to ask, could you explain a treatment very quickly, just for those listeners of the pod who <sighs> so what. Well, I'm not completely sure, even still now, exactly yeah. what a treatment is. So a treatment is usually sold to me as the short story of the yeah of the the script. Yeah, for me, it's a it's prose version, and um, it doesn't read like a short story. Um, when I would write a treatment, I uh, when I when I do a treatment, uh, I do a, generally so I do a one pager or one and a half pager, yeah. maybe a two pager. Yes, yeah, where you just try and write the story in as exciting a way as you can yeah. as a piece of prose yeah. in like eight paragraphs. Yeah. But I've read other people's treatments, which are vastly different. Some people yeah. you know stick to one page. Some people do eight. Yeah. Um, and I think uh, you know there have been you know, older golden age Hollywood treatments which are like you know a hundred hundred and ten yeah. pages yep. where you'd, yep, yep, you'd, yep. you'd write the novel of the script mm -hmm. and then come back and pare it down into the script. Yeah. So I think everyone's version of a treatment is different. I personally think less is more. If yep. someone asks me to do a treatment, I'll do a page and a half. Yeah. And I think if you haven't got people's attention, and if you can't explain the story in a page and a half, 
it's either too boring or it's too complicated. Yeah. That's my personal opinion. What do you do about a treatment? Mine goes, I will start out with three sentences or something like that, you know, just to get the very rough outline of like three acts. That's good. And then I expand it to, yeah, page and a half. But then what I find is that it gets longer and longer as it's almost as if I'm, because I don't have the, the benefit of working with someone like Hitchcock. It's almost as if I'm going back to it, revisiting it. I get notes on it. And then it actually gets longer, and most of my treatments probably end at around 10 pages or something. Oh, so wow. They're, they're okay. just getting more detail, and it just makes it a lot easier to write the script at the other end because you've already got a lot of the notes. But I, for me, it's not good reading. It's more like this is these are the fundamentals of the story, and they'll be linked together. I never put dialogue, maybe a couple pieces of dialogue in there if they're must-hear you know, must phrases or sentences, but... Um, there's usually a lot of detail, but really not. It doesn't work like a story. I wouldn't want to read one of my treatments as a, as a, just like a you know relaxing reading or something like that. It just doesn't come across that way. It's not good prose. It's actually just very functional. See, I I, I save all that kind of difficult work for the beat sheet, basically. Yeah. So I yeah. I yeah I'll never write more than a page and a half, and then when it gets become becomes more complicated, it becomes yeah. a series of post-it notes on a big board. Okay. Um. So yeah, I've never done a ten-page treatment. Okay. I, my God, I hope I'm never asked to. That sounds horrendous. Actually. Yeah, yeah. No, that's really for personal reasons. I agree with you. The the, the a real treatment is good if it's two pages, because again, very often it's used as a selling document for people who make films, but they don't really want to read much. <laughs> That's yeah, I mean, that's a good overall theme for you know everybody in show business. People just don't like to read, do they? People hate reading. Um, so one of the things that Chandler said about Hitchcock, he said Hitchcock's less interested in plausibility, narrative logic, and character motivation than in creating a striking visual scene. Um, yeah. So uh, in the end, I think Hitchcock threw away a lot of what Raymond Chandler uh, wrote, um, and uh, he appealed to help from from uh, Ben Hecht. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. who then um, offered. Um, the, uh, the the use of his assistant uh, Chesney Ormond, mm-hmm. um, who'd been she so she'd been assistant for Ben Hecht. She rewrote Chandler. Uh, when Chandler eventually saw this uh, this draft, um, the final draft, he was kind of sent it, um, and he absolutely hated it. He there's a um, a letter that he wrote to Hitchcock, oh, which wow. calls it a flabby mass of cliches, a group of faceless characters, and the kind of dialogue that says everything twice and leaves nothing to be implied by the actor or the camera. Ooh. Um, oh. so, so Chandler just hated it um, and he was given the option to take his name off off the movie altogether uh-huh. and he refused mm. um, because uh, Chandler also had not had a hit for quite a while and he wanted he wanted the visibility <laughs> so so he took the money from Warner Brothers and he took the credit uh, even though very little of what his um, what was in his script ended up being used it's interesting in the in the uh, Creatures of Darkness book they, they spend a bit of time comparing um, the two versions of the scripts, um, which is fascinating. Yeah. So, like one little change um, in the in the original script by Chandler, I think the the dialogue is considerably snappier and more vervy. I think is that mm-hmm. a word vervy? If I just made that up, has more verve. So, like so well, one line when Guy says uh, in Chandler's script, he says, "I felt like breaking her cute little neck," and then Ormond's uh, final draft changes it. So he says, uh, I'd like to break her foul, useless little neck. Hmm. Um, and there's something about um, Chandler writing the script about breaking her cute little neck, which just brings that uh, it sort of brings a kind of, sort of psychosexual yeah. kind of craziness to it, um, which I think, yeah, it certainly is more vervy. Um, but it wasn't the script that Hitchcock wanted. And it's also perhaps not the line that Guy would say. I think uh, the ah, culture is a yeah. bit more... Um, east coast elite or something like that so 
your piece. Oh, yeah. yeah, exactly. So again, when, when you, I think of dialogue as often, you know, doing as much characterization as it's doing moving plot. So I think and Chandler about, is very kind of old Los Angeles. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Yep. 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 No, you're right. It's yeah, east versus west. Yep. Um, the, uh, one thing kind of worth bearing in mind about the original novel. So I th- apparently Patricia Highsmith's not her recurring theme. I've never read any of her books, actually. Have you? No, nope. I no. won't. Seen a couple of films made from her books, though. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. But so her recurring theme is basically that there is evil in everyone. It is part of human nature. Mm. Yeah. Um, and I think you know that certainly carries through to the final film. So. Yeah. So strangers on a train, Fardy Granger, uh, Robert Walker. Uh, Ruth Rawman, Patricia Hitchcock. So this is one of the few of Hitch's movies that stars his daughter. She uh, she has quite a good part in this yeah. movie, actually. She's probably one of the most fun characters. Yeah. Um, and it's a story about a tennis star. So uh, so Guy Harris, Guy uh, Guy Haynes, isn't it? It's, uh, Haynes, it's yeah. a tennis it's a tennis star. He's on a train. He bumps shoes with this kind of louche uh, guy, Bruno Anthony. Uh, uh, and this guy forces himself onto Guy. So he's like, he's a tennis fan. He forces himself onto him, forces him to share lunch. He proposes uh, over lunch. Uh, after telling him all about his life story, he proposes, oh, yeah, I know that you want to get rid of your wife. I want to get rid of my father. Why don't we swap murders crisscross? And you know, in the first few minutes, the basic premise of the film is very elegantly set up. So Guy, the tennis star, he kind of he smiles and he nods and realizes this guy's crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he kind of nods and smiles and basically says anything to get rid of Bruno, thinks no more about it. But um, Guy then goes to see his wife, Miriam, and they have this scene like in a record shop. So this is where she works. And so back in the old days when a record shop would be a place where you could go and buy records, listen to records, go into a little listening booth and put on a record. Um, I, uh, you know, Certainly shops like this never existed when I was uh, yeah. young. I've never seen a shop like this. I presume that they weren't around in the States when you were young. Yeah, that's a, it's interesting because I thought it was more of a music store and, 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 the, and I thought Hitchcock did something quite, quite intelligent was that he, you know, he always appears in his, film, in his films and when um, Guy is getting off the train in New Jersey... Hitchcock is getting on with a double bass. He's clumsily going on there. I thought they were selling musicians, uh, music, instruments and sheet music and things like that, because I think there's someone playing a piano. I thought those were practice rooms or teaching rooms. Oh. And it was glass. And it's, it's a wonderful scene because they have the witnesses to this rather um, important altercation between Guy and Miriam. Um, and everyone can see it and people can hear it a bit more than they should. And I, I thought they were interrupting other, either other people listening to record albums possibly, but I thought they were all um, instruments and playing like piano uh, and doing piano lessons and things like that. Oh, so I had a different maybe. take on that. I think, and I, think, I think you'd be lucky to fit a piano in one of those little yeah, listening booths. like a little but... keyboard or something. Yeah, but I, that's what I thought. But it, yeah, you've got a great point there. It could have been both, um, but I thought with Hitchcock getting on with the double bass, he was trying to tell us, you know, trying to link us to the next scene. Ah, oh, that's cute. Yeah, mm, absolutely. It's good. It's good. Uh, so, so Miriam, it turns out she's pregnant by another man. Uh, guy wants to divorce her, but she refuses because she's looking forward to him becoming a big tennis star and then sort of swanning around with him in big social gatherings. So she's kind of thwarting him and, and sort of making a fool of him at every turn. Um, uh, after this guy makes a phone call to his new girlfriend, Anne, 
uh, and uh, and as a train is passing, he has to raise his voice and he shouts out yeah. that line about, "Oh, I, I want to break her, you know, I want to to to, to break her foul, useless little neck." Um, that's where that line comes in. Um, but uh, that's not the sort of thing that you should shout out loud when you're in a public place. It turns out. No. Um, so after this, Bruno, the crazy guy from the train, uh, turns up. He finds Miriam. He waits outside her house. He follows her to a to a, a fair, and he shadows her while she sort of goes around the different stalls with her two boyfriends. And eventually, um, uh, after they go on this, uh, he he follows them on this little uh, this little um, tunnel of love boat trip. Mm-hmm. They go to this deserted island. He he uh, gets her on her own, and he strangles her. It, you know, it's, it's a pretty explicit, shocking, violent scene, although it's kind of tempered by the way that it is shot, isn't it? Because we didn't see the actual murder. We see like this virtual murder. We see a reflection of the murder in her glasses, which have fallen on the ground. So Hitchcock tries to distance us um, from the murder while still you know, making us watch it in close-up. Yeah, I think it's brilliant. And then the glasses fall to the grass, broken... Lensed and all, I think it, I think it's brilliant. Yeah, you don't see it um, directly on screen. You're seeing it as a reflection in, in the victim's eye glasses. It's crazy. It's wonderful. I mean, Hitchcock's quite big on this um, this kind of this, this voyeurism, isn't it? I mean, yeah. I we watched um, uh, Rear Window a few months ago, and mm-hmm. I was explaining to the children that Rear Window is all about being. He's going to the cinema because because yeah. uh, James Stewart is is watching the world through this kind of rectangular window. Yep. And you know all these you know terrible violent things are happening, but they're happening kind of out there through this through this screen. Yeah, and uh, this this is the same again. This is this is about we in the cinema watching the violence um, through a screen through a mediated sort of lens. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's this kind of recurrent Hitchcock theme. So Bruno has done his murder. Um, he goes to uh, Guy's house uh, in Washington. Waits outside his apartment, tells him, "Oh, I've done the murder for you." Um, and uh, Guy, unsurprisingly, says, "You're mad. Get away from me. I don't want to have anything to do with you." This is this is a great scene. This might be kind of my favourite scene in the. Well, I think see, I'm going to put this as my second favourite scene in the movie. Okay. Um, that uh, Bruno uh, hides behind this gate while he talks to to Guy and explains that he's done the murder. And, you know, it looks like he's behind jail, uh, bars in a jail, basically. He's behind bars. He's put himself behind bars. Mm-hmm. And then some police come to Guy's apartment, obviously to break the news that, you know, we've found your wife, she's dead. Yeah. Um, and Guy, not wanting to be caught talking to Bruno, also steps behind the bars. So it's like he's joining him in prison. It's, you know, it's not a subtle no, it's not visual subtle. metaphor, but it's, but it's, it's brief. It's, uh, it's brief. Too. Yeah, it's, it's brief and it's very yeah, cutely played. But it's wonderful. Uh, you know, and it's a theme that kind of keeps uh, keeps coming back, actually, because now Bruno stalks Guy across Washington, D.C., and he's constantly kind of turning up and he, he spots him in the museum and he's waiting for him outside some kind of big national monument. Mm-hmm. And he ends up uh, crashing a party that that Guy is at. And all the time, um, Bruno's trying to persuade Guy to murder his father. Mm-hmm. Um, the scene in the party at uh, this kind of this um, this prison uh, motif comes back again, actually. Another kind of really cute little touch because Guy is wearing a, a tie, which has got these big bold stripes on it. And Bruno is wearing a formal dress shirt, which has got stripes on it as well. And it's again, it's like they're wearing a very formal 
highfalutin versions of prison uniforms yeah. again. It's kind of it's Hitchcock working that theme again and again. He knows how to work a theme. Oh God, does he ever? Yeah. Um, there's this kind of weird scene at the party where um, Bruno is talking to some society women about, oh, what's, what's the best way to murder somebody? <laughs> and he gets a kind of a big carried away and strangles an elderly lady almost to death. Um, and you would think, funny, yeah, surely a bit of a red flag and yet still manages to get away with it. And so to get him off his back, Guy eventually, he tells Bruno that he is going to agree to murder Bruno's father. And we, the audience, left slightly in the dark here because... Uh, you know, we see Guy agree to this and then Guy goes to his, his dresser and he takes out a revolver which Bruno has given him earlier mm -hmm. and we as the audience I think are supposed to start questioning God, maybe he really is going to do the murder and apparently in the book in Patricia Highsmith's book yeah. Guy does murder Bruno's father oh. in, in Hitchcock's film he does not mm -hmm. um, so there's a beautiful suspenseful scene where Guy turns up the, the in the middle of the night to Bruno's father's house, he climbs the stairs and there's a dog. It's enormous. Mm -hmm. Is it a Doberman? What is that dog? It's a uh, massive dog. Couldn't it look like a Great Dane? Right. Okay. It's an enormous, terrifying dog. Hand, it's yeah, just yeah. growling at him on the stairs. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, it hasn't been set up set up like you know, like Indiana Jones being frightened of snakes. It hasn't been set up that guys frightened of dogs, but mm -hmm. you know, anyone would be frightened of this dog. Yes. Um, so. He, he manages to make it past the dog, gets to the father's bedroom um, and he tells the father, oh, I've come to talk to you about your son. He's a bit nuts uh, when the lights go on and it's not the father in the bed at all. It's Bruno uh, who realizes now that um, Guy doesn't plan to kill his father at all. And uh, I think that scene that follows this, this is definitely my favorite scene in the movie, which is a wonderful scene of a man not firing a gun. He just um, tells Guy, you know, I'm going to get my revenge on you one way or another and just points the gun at him as Guy very calmly, slowly walks away. Yeah. And you know, we in the audience and Guy know that Bruno is probably crazy enough to pull the trigger at any moment, mm -hmm. but he doesn't. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a great scene of a man not shooting a gun, very skillfully uh, filmed, it, full of suspense. Yeah, Beautiful. something very similar happens in Notorious when... Uh, think uh, Ingrid Bergman's being let out of a house and you think that the evildoers, the bad guys are going to kill her and God, who's the actor in that film? Cary Grant. And you I think it is Cary Grant. Yeah, yeah. And they're leaving and the same sort of thing happens. There's just this menace right behind them and Hitchcock, great on the timing. He lets you feel it, feel it, feel it and then nothing happens but you still feel like something happened. You definitely, you know, you had characters who were definitely scared, scared, scared and uh, Something he does really, really well. That that scene immediately reminded me. And I agree with you. That whole sequence of Guy going into the house, getting around the house um, is brilliant. And, and then getting back out with um, Bruno following him. There's just one moment yeah. that I love, the flashlight moment, or the tor I guess you'd say torch in England, where um, Bruno's in the house and he's... I know, Guy's in the house. He's reading Bruno's map. And if you mm. when he's using the flashlight on the map in the dark from from his perspective, it's just this tiny little circle. But then when you flip back and see the shot of the piece of paper um, and 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 guy shining light on it, it's this huge light that spills all over the room. It's just uh, it's wonderful. I mean, I don't know I don't know how they got it, they did that, but um, probably should have reshot that moment. But it's it's funny. So there are it's unintentionally funny, but it's just a great scene because it has suspense, it has surprise, it has humors, it has menace. It's just this one sequence that's just phenomenal.
I think the torch thing, I'm going to take that as a metaphor for tunnel vision, I think. Yeah. I'm going to let him oh, get away with nice. that. Oh, nice. Good. So, well done. <laughs> so, Bruno, so Bruno, um, he's had uh, Guy's lighter ever since he picked it up on the train, yeah. which is this uh, very personalized, distinctive cigarette lighter. And um, when Anne, who is uh, Guy's uh, girlfriend, and now presumably fiancé now that his, his pesky wife is out of the way, mm. um, she goes to Bruno's house and, and tells him, oh, you've got to stop troubling a guy. Um, Bruno more or less tells her that he's planning to plant the lighter at the scene of the murder yeah. to frame Guy. Um, and so the, the final kind of act of the film then is is Bruno uh, gradually making his way back to the scene of the murder, intending to, to leave this evidence, and Guy racing to stop him. But because Guy is a tennis player, mm -hmm. um, Guy's got a match uh, that afternoon and he has to try and finish the match as quickly as he possibly can before catching a train and trying to stop Bruno. Um, and it's, again, it's a fantastically tense scene where the commentators are, are pointing out that Guy normally plays this very slow, methodical tennis. Yeah. But uh, this match, he's playing you know, like a madman and desperately trying to win every point he can to try and win the match super, super quickly so that he can leave the auditorium. Um, uh, after we watched this, my children pointed out, why didn't he just lose the tennis match? <laughs> And then he could have left like almost immediately. <laughs> That's true. Uh, reputation. I think there's a, there's reputation is definitely a theme here because um, he's worried about he he's going to get into politics. Anne's father is a senator. He wants to get into politics as well, and he wants to be a, a great tennis player. So I think he he really wants to win. I think it's all part of his reputation. He I like the idea that his you know his value system is that you know I, I don't want to go to prison for murder, but even more than that, I don't want to lose a tennis yeah. match. <laughs> So yeah, I, oh, I can see his point of view. We all feel like that. Yeah. So, um, so uh, finally, he he wins the match. He manages to escape these detectives who are tailing him. He jumps on a train to go to the the station where uh, Bruno is planning to plant the evidence. And then at the fair, before he can plant the evidence, Bruno gets spotted. Um, he tries to hide on a merry-go-round. But then the police turn up and uh, it's absolutely an incredible, uh, incredible moment. <laughs> um, they kind of get out their guns and start shooting at Bruno. Um, but they don't they don't hit him. But they do mm. manage to hit the guy uh, who, who operates the, the merry-go-round. Mm -hmm. So he, he dies. And as he dies, he pushes the accelerator, this big lever that speeds the merry-go-round up. Um, and then there's this kind of remarkable climax yeah. with Bruno and Guy both fighting uh to stay alive on this merry-go-round that's circling around at 110 miles an hour. <laughs> and it's you know, cleverly interspersed with this little bit of comedy, which made our whole family laugh when we watched it, actually, because yeah. there's also a little boy on the merry-go-round mm -hmm. who thinks this is fantastic, fantastic fun and he's having a great time yep. <laughs> while these two men are fighting this kind of life-and-death battle. Mm -hmm. And then I, there's... Uh, I was going to say, another a, thing I love about yep. that scene is um, an old man volunteers to sort of stop the carousel <laughs> And he very slowly is crawling <laughs> underneath this madly spinning merry-go-round. Um, and he, he finally does get back to the lever and he's able to stop it. But it's, and the way it's cut also, it's, I don't know if it just, it's a relativity thing, but it looks like he's going very slowly for the longest <laughs> time. And then when he actually pops up into the space where he can get towards the leather, lever, he moves very, very quickly. <laughs> So it's, it's again, there's a lot of humor in there. Yeah, but the boy loving the ride and then all these women, young women screaming and all the, the, the bystanders are just crying and screaming and shouting. It's in a great moment. It's a great moment in cinema.
There's a, a little comment again in the in the Truffaut book um, mm-hmm. about that scene, actually, where Hitchcock says that they they did the stunt for real. So the guy who was climbing, uh, was crawling underneath yeah. the merry-go-round, yeah. um, he, was, he was a real guy crawling underneath a real merry-go-round that was really going really fast. And Jesus. he was saying if the guy just looked up a couple of inches, it would have taken his head off. Yeah, yeah. And Hitchcock was saying it was just terrifying and he would never, ever do a stunt like that again because yeah, it was know. just far too dangerous. Yeah. Um, and yet, strangely, that's not the thing that looks like the most dangerous thing in no, the, no, in the movie. It comes up as a little humorous, ultimately. <laughs> so the, the carousel goes haywire. Eventually, it gets stopped, but it's, it gets stopped far too quickly. So the whole thing just kind of disintegrates. Mm-hmm. Um, Bruno is, is killed, although he's you're not killed outright immediately. Mm-hmm. And uh, the police are there while Bruno still does his best with his dying breaths to implicate Guy. Yeah. Um, but then uh, as Bruno finally breathes his last, the lighter that he was planning to leave as evidence slips out of his fingers. And in this one immediate moment, Guy is completely exonerated yeah. uh, and, and, uh, and, and free. And it's, it's obvious who did the real murders. And uh, mm-hmm. you know, the whole thing doesn't need to go to trial. It's completely obvious. You're all free to go. Thank you very much. Good night. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, Just, I'll tell you one yeah. other great thing about Hitchcock is he knows when yeah. to get out, doesn't yeah. he? Uh, you know, you're never outstaying your welcome there. Yes. It's not a short film, but uh, you know, come the end, he knows when to get out. Yeah, I think, yeah, and I'm glad you say that because I think that's where these two films differ a lot is that this is about an hour and 40 minutes, I think, and there are twists, there are some surprises in the third act, but they don't derail the whole story. Um, it stays yeah. pretty pretty um, resolute, and it's just wonderfully delivered the whole way. Um, there's this one moment, though, that I did want to ask you about, because um, in that scene, it, I think it's the boy who's having the time of his life on this merry-go-round as it's going 100 miles an hour. Um, there's a point where while Guy and Bruno are beating each other up, the boy falls. I think it's the same boy. Mm. And yeah, then it is, yeah. there's this save the cat kind of moment where Guy goes to save the kid. And I think that kind of happens in part because Guy's not a really likable character, even, you know, through all this. You know, you feel like he's the innocent guy who's being framed for some uh, crime he didn't commit. But he's really not that likable. But at, I think at that last moment, we have to see some sort of difference between um, Guy and Bruno. So he sort of saves the boy and that sort of gets him into trouble. And Bruno's got a few more chances to try and you know, like kill him at that moment. Um, but Guy succeeds in saving the boy. And I think that's there to sort of make you feel a little bit more sympathetic to his character. Yeah. I mean, I think, I, now do I remember this right? I think, doesn't Bruno like throw the boy at Guy or something like that? Oh. Or tries to throw the boy off the off the merry-go-round to try and distract uh, Guy? Something okay. like that. I mean, be, I think, yeah, yeah, this is like a, a real... You know, character through action moment, yeah. isn't it? It's yep. like you know, any any sympathy you might have had for Bruno is out mm-hmm. the window at that point. Mm-hmm. Oof, yeah. So, so yeah, um, roller coaster. Yeah, very entertaining movie. Yeah, um, full of these kind of crisscross motifs. Yeah. So this this is where crisscross comes from, isn't it? And then Bruno says crisscross several times. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. Um, to the extent that you're know, in our house after the first time we saw um, Strangers on the Train, crisscross, yeah, was it like a little a recurring family joke for, for years? I think we're still kind of say crisscross, and like the, you know, the way the movie starts with these uh, train tracks crisscrossing, yes, and and it uh, opens just by focusing on the shoes of the characters, yep, great, and how great their stuff. paths crisscross. I mean, yeah, he's really working these themes, yep. I love it. You don't see the you don't see the faces of the two characters until a couple minutes in when they actually sit down opposite one another on the train. The focus is really on 
the shoes, the tennis racket. And, you know, at first I thought they're trying to sort of show some difference in status there. Um, because like like uh, Do Revenge, this is a high society kind of film. It's this sort of East Coast, D.C. to New York City crowd. They're kind of going back and down, up and up and down the coast on um, the trains. Um, it's not so in your face as um, Do Revenge, I don't think. But these are definitely wealthy people with, you know... Yeah. Um, you know, like wealthy problems, and they want to move some people out of the way by killing them. And um, it's not, yeah, Bruno's not a poor guy either. He, he lives in this, boy, it looks like a castle, really. Um, so they're both pretty <laughs> yes. well off. They're both pretty, you know, elite. Um, but again, it, it sort of, it's dealing with the same society that I think Do Revenge is trying to deal with as well. And there's an interesting thing that um, Bruno says on the train early on. He says, people who do things are important. He keeps saying that I'm not important, but people who do things are important. And that's right before he sort of proposes that you do my murder, I do yours. So in both films, there's this sort of do revenge, do murder. That's not really the kind of uh, verb structure we'd normally use with those, but um, definitely links between the films in that way. I tell you another link between the strangers on a train and do revenge is that strangers on a train also hates women, doesn't it? Um, the, yeah. there's, there's only one person who is murdered in the whole film, and it's Miriam, who's mm -hmm. a guy's uh, wife. And the film shows utterly no sympathy for her at all. Um, no one really is particularly upset that she has been murdered. The only impact that uh, the murder of Miriam has on the characters is that everybody is worried that Guy now will be implicated for the death of this woman. <gasps> How terrible. Poor you guys. Isn't that yeah. dreadful? Um, and yet, you know, utterly no sympathy for Miriam at all. Yeah. Um, and in fact, the film kind of invites us almost to enjoy murdering her, actually. Um you know, not only do we do we watch it in close up, kind of doubled up in the in the reflection of the glasses, but yeah. we're kind of also invited to relive it in the scene where where Bruno strangles Mrs. Cunningham at the at the high society party. Yeah, uh, and then you know, and, and um, you know, this notion of sort of looking and strangling and or looking and murdering being somehow kind of uh, equivalent is what uh, is what happens when uh, Barbara. Uh, who is uh, Hitchcock's daughter on screen. Yep. She's uh, the sister of uh, Anne, mm -hmm. um, Anne Morton, who's Guy's uh, fiancé. Um, she kind of notices that something's strange about Bruno because when he's strangling Mrs. Cunningham, he's looking directly at her yeah. as if he's kind of strangling her by proxy. Yep. So this film is yeah, very liberal with its violence against women um, and it doesn't really have much of a problem with with murdering a woman who's pregnant by another man yeah. she's just a you know she's a she's a pest she's I, a yeah. an impediment not a person and they don't they use that as a means to sort of uh defame her in the sense that she's off she's with two boys at the amusement park and it's all very flirtatious and then she originally she looks at um, bruno a lot as he's stalking her around as if um she's interested in him as well so i think it sort of um plays with yeah it sort of traffics in this uh, uh promiscuity kind of trope that uh Maybe she deserves death, or maybe she's not. She's not a, a great woman because uh, she uh, goes out with boys. Yeah, exactly. It's it's funny, isn't it? Yeah, a, a woman is killed because she deserves it. The real victim here is Guy. Yeah. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's, yeah. It's I insane. think you're right. I think um, you're right. Yeah. Uh, there is also kind of yeah, so, you know, quite a, a sort of a, a queer theme, I think, in this film as well, isn't it? Because I think it's, it feels feels to me like this implies that Bruno is gay. And also the guy is, you know, is is kind of slightly seduced by him, isn't he? I think there is a kind of, you know, you can read the film that way. 
Um, I've written here in my notes that this, this film hates and loves gay men because um, it invites us both to you know enjoy their company and yet at the same time you know appreciate how dreadful and dastardly they all are. Farley Granger was a gay man too. It's very interesting. Yeah, in that way. I think he, no, that, he is yeah. seduced by him though. I think you've got a good point there that um and it's it seems more it's that moment where he's yelling on the phone and saying I wish I could kill my wife and then he sort of he doesn't really actively go back and say boy Bruno had a good idea or anything like that. But that's sort of in there like he he understands Bruno and that idea. Um so he's tempted. I think there's a sort of temptation there that's uh not seduced, I don't think, sexually, but uh, definitely tempted, I think, in terms of the, that darkness. It's, I mean, like pretty much all of Hitchcock's films, it's basically it's wall-to-wall sex and violence, isn't it? I was imagining trying to explain to, to somebody who, who Hitchcock was who didn't know, and I came up with explaining that he is the Paul Verhoeven of the 1950s. Oh, because, yeah. um, because, you know, all of his films are you know, very, very highly sexual um, and, you know, and incredibly violent. And although... You know, most of the violence is kind of implied or it's yeah. you know, held one arm removed. And although the sex is not explicit, really kind of, you know, every theme um, and every uh, sort of plot device, every basis of these Hitchcock movies, it's all it's sex and violence, wall to wall sex and violence. These yeah. are the, the prime movers. Mm. I agree with you. Yeah. But I, I love this film. I mean, yes, it's probably a little bit sexist and maybe it's uh, homophobic on one level, but um it's God. It's the photography is fantastic. The shots are set up beautifully, um, and it's you know it's tight. His timing is wonderful. You watch that opening scene with the the the, the walking, and there's a it's a it's a Dimitri Tiomkin, um soundtrack. Um, he did the score for this, and you know they work really well together. The music and just his timing with Pitchcock, it's always just beautiful. He's never holding on an image too long. Um, he really just knows what he's doing and it's it's wonderful to see someone at the height of his powers at this point which is funny because as you said there were some flops around that time and he's got some terrible films there's no question about it but um, I would agree this I don't know if it's the fourth best Hitchcock film but it's definitely one of the top <laughs> ten um, one thing I would mention is and, and this is a contrast between the two films I, like the touchstones that we talked about in Do Revenge being the Schoolhouse Rock thing or the Fatal Attraction uh, quote, um, Hitchcock loves landmarks as touchdowns. So he's, he's using, um, the cap is it the Capitol building appears quite a bit in Washington, DC. I think it, right, there's, yeah, there is a big building with columns. Yeah. You, know, you would have to tell me what it is. I'm afraid. Yeah. And then, well, then there's the, the one with the cupola is the, the, and it's wonderfully used. It's, um, you know, that Bruno is in Washington and stalking guy because in the, it's a very short scene. They're just having a telephone call. And behind uh, Bruno uh, is the, the the Capitol building in um, in DC, right, okay. and then there's I think it's either I think I wrote down the Lincoln Memorial. It may have been the Jefferson Memorial in Hutton site, but he always has you know like if it's Mount Rushmore or I think the, the yeah. British Library is in there at some point, right? Um, he's used the Statue of Liberty. I mean, he's always popping up, and these are he uses these references to try and get some information into films, which I think they're just they're more permanent than these sort of touchstone moments of schoolhouse rock which is not going to work for everyone or fatal attraction which will not work for everyone instead he's using things that are just more permanent and and you get this sense of permanence in his films you know this is cinema as opposed to uh do revenge being a movie i guess that kind of attitude it's one little detail i didn't mention which i loved so much i made a little note of it in my notes here which is that there's a scene in um the fairground 
mm. when Bruno is going off to plant the evidence and uh, there's a big neon sign over the entrance to the fairground, which is something like 20 big attractions. This is something like that. Yeah. Uh, but the camera is placed so that we see Bruno walking just between the number 20 and the word big. Um, and he's like this little figure in between the two. And I'm presuming mm -hmm. that 20 big ones is the, the, like the standard sentence for murder. Oh, really? Oh, uh, for like years I, I in guess prison? it must be. I'm, oh, yeah. I'm guessing that's why he walks between the words 20 big, oh, that's I good. think. Yeah. Because, you know, it cannot be um, a coincidence. But it's, uh, you know, it's beautiful. And I love like this idea of uh, not just stating your themes with, um, you know, with action and with visuals, but also just writing it in great big words on yeah. the screen <laughs> lit up in neon. You know, yeah. why not? Why not? It's right there. It's there for the asking. Well, it's funny that you mentioned the um, the bit about Chandler complaining about Hitchcock just wanting to put pictures together. Well, that's that's what good filmmaking is. You want to get your visuals <laughs> yes. down and tell the story. So Chandler's coming from a completely different medium and background. And it's funny that he has problems with Hitchcock for that reason. It's very, it's a shame because these are you know two of my favorite creators from the twentieth century. So, yeah. you know, so love Hitchcock. Yeah. So love Raymond Chandler. Uh, some of my favorite books. I mean, just fantastic. And it, you know, it's it, but it's it's unsurprising, but a shame that they didn't really get on and weren't really able to produce anything meaningful. You know, yeah. as a collaborator. But a great film came out of it. That's the the irony is that a yeah. great film yeah. comes out of yeah. the collaboration. <laughs> so the winner here was cinema. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Good. Well, before we go, um, just time uh, for us to talk about uh, what's also playing at this cinema, uh, where we're going to have a, a quick shout out um, about uh, any other things, just one other thing that we've maybe seen or read or watched or heard about or listened to um, this last couple of weeks. Mm. Um, what's also playing at your cinema? What, what, you, what, what else have you been seeing? Ooh, we've been watching some Netflix. Uh, so I've uh, we've started uh, the the Squid Game, which is whew, super ah. violent, quite quite well done. Um, but I'm just beginning to enjoy that, and have been balancing it with something called I think it's called Schmigadoon. It's a right. it's on that's on I think Apple TV maybe. It's a sort of a, a fake musical, very much based on Brigadoon. Uh, but really full of all sorts of SNL and Broadway characters who um, do this wonderfully absurd comic uh, musical. Uh, so that's that's some light fare. And then I don't know, I, I know I blogged about Marcel the Shell with Shoes on, but I don't know if we've talked about it, but I loved that. I think it's called Marcel the Shell with Shoes, not Shoes. Right. Um, loved that film. So I would definitely recommend that. And boy, I've got to look. I haven't been to the cinema in a couple of weeks now. I've really gotten into the habit <gasps> of watching on... Line, I think it's partly because of some of the films that we have been covering have been more available streaming than in the cinemas. See, now, now that the nights are drawing in, we're going to be going out less, exactly. Yeah, right? yeah. Cozy, cozy up at home, yeah. stay warm. What about going you? outside? What's going on at so, your well, so we, well, it, we watched Squid Game, yeah. I'm trying to think when it was, probably about six months ago, yeah, something yeah. like that, when it was like at its super mega height of yeah. success. And I felt like you couldn't leave the house without somebody telling you about how great Squid Game was. Yeah. Certainly everybody at work was talking about it. So we watched that. I'll be interested to hear your opinions about mm. it after you get to the end. Okay. Um, uh, I think by the time we were midway through, we were really enjoying it. Yeah. But but um, let's, let's talk about it when you've, uh, yeah. got to the end the other thing we've been watching is catching up with the final season of Better Call Saul oh, which yeah. I think is just fantastic oh, it's just superb I've been trying to avoid spoilers but every time I watch an episode of that I have to 
convince myself that this is a television series. Oh, wow. So beautifully filmed. Yeah. Really fantastic cinematography. And you know, they really, really take their time with the images, so much so that you know, it's glacially paced. And I absolutely don't mind because I enjoy spending time with the images and the characters. It's really, oh, it's, it's magnificent. It's a real achievement. But now that we're about two or three episodes from the very, very end of the show, I hope they don't blow it at the end. So I'm waiting to find out. I'm seasons behind you. I think I've only seen the first season and I need to get back in that. And a lot of okay. that's just because my wife, with whom I watch these things, did not like it early on. So... Ah. So then I start watching things that we can watch together. So right, okay. we'll go back and do it oh, for sure, yeah. I, yeah. I mean, she didn't enjoy the first season. She probably won't enjoy the rest yeah. because you know, they establish a tone and stick with it. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to that tone. <laughs> Get more of that tone. Mm-hmm. Well, this has been the Two Real Cinema Club. Okay, one classic and, and one uh, not so much. But <laughs> but, uh, this, uh, but like you say, there's something to be learned from watching even a film that doesn't succeed. So. Absolutely, yeah. I've I, I got to say, I enjoyed it, and it made me think. Not about the things that I thought I was going to think about, but about other things. About that other stuff. That other stuff, yeah. Right, uh, so uh, thanks for joining us. Um, and uh, we'll be back with a popcorn counter next week and then uh, more movies the week after that. That sounds good. So uh, see you then. See you later.